Lord Father, this morning we come to praise your name, for you alone are worthy to be praised. We come this morning as your people who cry out, Abba, Father. And we can, Father, because of the reconciling work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that has brought us into union with you. And, Father, we, we cry out from the depths of our heart. And our prayer is this morning that we might know you more. Our prayer is that through the worship today, we may leave here knowing the Father better. But Father, the central part of this service, the central reason we are here today is to lift our hearts in adoration and praise to you. And we do that, Father, because you are good and you are faithful. Father, we come this morning as a people and as a nation who are burdened with events that... Uh, Remind us that we are not in control of anything, that you indeed are the sovereign God and nothing, nothing happens uh, without your before your your plan to ordain it. And we we rest in that, Father. We are reminded of the words of our president yesterday as he spoke after the tragic accident. We are reminded of the words of Isaiah. Lift up your eyes. And look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Indeed, Father, not one is missing because you are God. And so, Father, with burdened hearts and grievous hearts, we lift up the families of those who lost their loved ones yesterday in the tragic accident of the space shuttle. And we pray, Father, that you would, you would comfort those families and raise them up again one day, renew their strength as they look towards you, the God who offers hope. Father, we are burdened today because our country faces difficult days ahead. And we would think again of our president who has to make major decisions. And we pray, Father, that you will guide our president in the coming days. And may all that we do be just and right as a nation. Father, we remember our pastor this morning and his wife, and we commit them again to you. We thank you for the good week that you gave them. And we pray that this coming week would be even better and that they might learn of your grace in a greater way as they minister there in Budapest. We pray that people may be encouraged and the lost may come to know Christ as a result of their mission work there. Father, we would lift up our own family this week. We lift up Michael and Lee Lund, who will be leaving Wednesday to a mission, medical mission trip in Africa. And we pray that you will give them safe travel, give them good health, and protect them while they're away from us. And we pray that lost people may come to know Christ. Use them this week in a mighty way. We commit them to you. Finally, Father, we thank you for the way you have prospered us. You've been good and faithful to us. We are a satisfied people because of your sovereign care. And, Father, we pray that you will receive these offerings in a small way as a token of our gratitude for what you have done for us. And then I would pray for the preacher of the hour, that you, Father, would use him and that you may speak through him that we may be encouraged by the preaching of the word. And we commit all of these things to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our speaker for the hour hardly needs introduction. He's a hometown boy, grew up at Central Church. Many of you know Les Newsom. 
Uh, we have supported Les for many years here at Grace. He is the campus minister at Ole Miss for Reform University Fellowship and doing a great job down there at, in Oxford. My own daughter has been greatly influenced by Les's faithful teaching and ministry there. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but the Les's parents, uh, Bill and Ginger, I think they're in this service. Bill, Ginger, wave, wave at me if you're out there. Uh, Ginger, would you stand up and let's, let's, uh, I want the, I want you to meet, uh, Bill and, and Ginger Newsom, stand up. These are the parents of Les Newsom. They've been members of Grace for some time. Uh, doing a good job. Did a good job with their son. Also, uh, Les's brother David and his family are members here at Gracie Van. It's a joy to have Les preach for us. This is our first guest speaker. So, Les, God bless you, brother, and welcome. If you brought your Bibles this morning, please open up to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> There will be two distractions for you this morning. The first one, as you've already noticed, is my voice. I woke up yesterday morning, tried to speak, and nothing came out. So this is the best that I can do for you this morning. I'm going to squeak. My voice is going to crack. It'll be like another trip through puberty now, won't it? (laughs) Didn't have enough fun the first time around, so why not do it twice? So bear with me. I'll just beg for your patience. The second distraction is actually going to, I'm afraid, is going to involve me. Uh, For most of you, uh, I'm a stranger to this pulpit, and that's okay. I look forward to meeting you and being with you one more time in the month of March. But for a significant portion of you, you have known me uh, far too long, or at least long enough for me to be incredibly intimidated by this experience. And I can only imagine that this uh, morning is uh, something like... uh, Something akin to a, a, the, going to the circus and watching the little dogs that wear the tutus and the little pointy hats and walk around on their back legs. Uh, it's sort of entertaining, but it just doesn't really seem natural. <laughs> Thankfully, though, this morning we have not uh, gathered here to talk about me. Hebrews chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 4. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is God's word. Let's pray before we consider it. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we do believe these not to be words about you, but we believe them to be your words. Would you please look past all of the distractions of this morning and give us great grace as we consider this passage that we might see you. Of all of the things that we could have come here to to get this morning, we could have come to have heard wonderful praise music. We could have come to see and encourage each other. But none of it will leave us changed if we leave here not seeing you. We don't know how to do that. But we know that your spirit does. And so we beg his presence here among us this morning. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
a mere seven and a half years ago now <clears throat> that I found myself sitting in Lowell Hayes Jewelry Store, the old location down on Poplar. It's an almost out-of-body experience while you're sitting there as a 25-year-old man, hearing yourself say to the sales lady, I, I'm here to buy an engagement ring. Kind of strange. Uh, quite honestly, I'm, I'm not an emotional person, but it was really a, that, was a, that was an emotional experience for me. It was a breathtaking experience to have the lady sort of bring them all out there in front of you, you know. Lay them out there. And, of course, I don't know the first thing about diamonds, right? You just look at them. Oh, it's, it's shiny, I guess, right? But then she started to slowly teach me. She had these little fancy little tongs that she picked them up with. And she told me exactly how to look at them under the light and how every time that you turned it, you might even see something new on the inside of it. With each and every turn of the facets, you would see some, some brand new vision, some brand new explosion that the light would do as it played inside of the diamond. I want to suggest to you that more, this morning that the writer of the entire book of Hebrews is doing much the same thing. Only the diamond that he's holding up for you and I to look at this morning is the diamond of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire book, you can actually outline it that way is the author's attempt to let you see facet after facet of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As if to say to you, I promise you, this is better than anything else you've seen. Whatever sort of allegiance, whatever thing that you might find within your soul that might be worthy of your attention, this is better. The reason why Christians become fanatics is because they have found something in the person and work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ to quote Jonathan Edwards as being altogether lovely. Our passage this morning is his introduction into this theme. And from there we will start. The passage lists for us a string of seven attributes. Seven attributes. The first four deal with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his being the inheritor, in his being the creator, the reflector, and also being um, <clears throat> the representer. But the last three deal with his work. In other words, the first four deal with who he is in his person. The last three deal with what he has done. In the interest of time, if you will have patience with me, we're only going to deal with the last three. This is the second part of a two-part series that I did when we were um, last fall at RUF, so bear with me as we only deal with half the passage. You can look at the rest in your own study, right? You've got all afternoon. It's a lovely day. So I want to suggest to you this morning that the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us three attributes as it describes the work of the Lord Jesus. First, he says this in verse 3. He says that the Son is sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The Lord Jesus, he says, is a sustainer. He is a sustainer in the sense that he is holding all things together. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul will say to the believers uh, in, in Colossae that Jesus is before all things. So much so that in him all things hold together. What does that mean? I want to suggest to you that it means at least two things. It means sort of a cosmic sense, but also a personal sense. First, in the cosmic sense, it means that Jesus is holding all things together in the universe. The only reason why there is order in the universe is because Jesus is asking it to do so. 
We have things like uniformity in nature. We have gravity, laws of nature, science, only because Jesus is at this moment commanding them to act that way. There is no such thing as impersonal forces in the universe. Nothing is impersonal because of Jesus' very own speaking. But our passage actually gives us a little more information than that. Because it doesn't use for the word, word, the typical word that we think of. Most of us are used to the Greek word logos being quoted from pulpits as meaning the word, word. But the word here is different. It's the word rhema, which doesn't mean logos in the sense of God's revelation. But it means a word as a spoken word. In other words, it says that nature is there because Jesus is speaking actively into it. There's a, there's a profound point that I wish we had the whole morning to talk about from this issue that would simply say that reality is what it is simply because Jesus is telling it to be so. All of reality, when we see it coming through the written word of God and we hear the voice of Jesus speaking in it in the written pages, tells us that the Bible is not a collection of pithy religious sayings. The Bible is for us the very map of reality. You want to know what is real? The Bible says, come and read me. There is the inevitable pattern of the universe contained within this word. Again, I wish we had more time to talk about this. But in applying this, don't you see how how important it is to realize this? You do not have the option of whether or not you will ignore God's word. God's word, as it is spoken through the word, through the son, is absolutely inevitable. It cannot be avoided. In other words, there are a lot of people that go around thinking to themselves that they are the ones breaking God's law. But in actuality, in the process, it is God's law that is breaking them. So inevitable is it. Some of you perhaps are witnesses to that kind of a frightful fact, aren't you? The attempt to go against God's word, you find in the end, is an attempt to go against yourself. It splinters the soul. So first, it's true in a cosmic sense, Jesus as sustainer. But it's also true in a personal sense as well. In other words, there's a sense in which Jesus, being the cosmic sustainer, applies to us in in, in two different ways. Jesus' personal sustaining of us, I would suggest to you as... Terribly frightening, but also unbelievably comforting at the same time. What do I mean? Well, there's a story in Mark 4 that illustrates the point. Do you remember this story? The disciples have found themselves caught out on the middle of the sea in the midst of a storm. While Jesus very peacefully sleeps in the midst of it. Sleeping all the way through it. And of course, verse 38 records the the disciples' frantic cry. As they look at Jesus and say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Wake up! And, of course, you know how the story goes. Jesus wakes up, looks around at the wind, speaks to it, and boom, it gets calm. (laughs) The next verse, actually, is almost funny if you read it through a certain light. Verse 41 says that the disciples were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. (laughs) Terrified. In other words, my friends... The, 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 the fear that they experienced at, at seeing the waves come over and the fear that was coming upon them that the boat might capsize was nothing compared to the abject terror that they experienced when they realized who was in the boat with them. Thinking to themselves, what have we gotten ourselves into? My friends, can't you imagine as they sat there connecting the dots 
and realizing just who this person is. Surely the thought must have crossed their minds that if he has control over nature in this way, then it means that the, the only reason why the seat underneath me is holding together is because he is asking it to do so. The only reason that the molecules in your body are holding together this morning is because Jesus is telling them to do so. Folks, Jesus, very intimate, sustaining of all things, I want to suggest you brings him uncomfortably close to you. He is beside and in everything that you do. So much so that to imagine that he does not exist or to imagine his absence from your life is to live a lie. He's there whether we acknowledge it or not. Jesus is either with you and for you or he is with you and against you. There can be no middle ground with this person. In the first case, you are unspeakably safe. But in the second sense... You are trapped like a lab rat with no hope of escape. Please understand something that the Bible does not come to you with the person of Jesus as a recommendation for one good way among many to approach the universe. He comes as the way or there is no other way because he is the intimate sustainer. If you put your faith in this man and understand him for your salvation, you have the eternal encouragement of knowing that nothing can stop you, whatever you do in his will. Nothing you do will fade away. Nothing you do will pass. It'll never pass away. But, my friends, if you assume that this Jesus can be ignored or that he can somehow be marginalized, you do so to your own destruction. So inevitable is he. In him, all things hold together, the Apostle Paul says. It's true for your life as well. Is your life coming apart? Because if you are trying to live without him, it's going to. It's going to unravel. Is your, mar- is your life marked by order or by chaos? Because it seems as if the writer of Hebrews is saying that the more closely that you find this person to be beautiful in and of himself, the more your, li- your life will be sustained. Jesus comes to us as sustainer. But secondly, he comes to us as purifier, right? In the very same verse, verse 3, it says, after he had provided purification for sins. Many of you have heard that sin creates a debt that must be paid. But I want to suggest to you this morning that sin also creates a stain that must be cleansed or purified. In other words, sin comes with it A sense of dirtiness. Sin comes with with filth. Mental health professionals refer to this aspect of sin under the idea of shame. Most psychologists have known for a while that this sense of shame is an extremely powerful influence. An extremely powerful force that shapes the human psyche. Of course, to its detriment, of course. But folks, I want to suggest to you that the Bible teaches... That sin does the same thing to your soul that dirt does to your body or that dirt does to the natural order. That we can't go in and see God in our present condition. That we are born with a sense of knowing that we cannot approach the God of the universe in the manner in which we were born. We can't do it. We need purification. We're dirty in that sense from sin. Think about it. Sin does the same thing to you that dirt does to your body. Dirt to your body will isolate and alienate you. You ever thought about that? 
The, 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 the mere smell keeps me away from people, right? Sick and dirty people, what do we, we want to stay away from them, right? We don't know what to do with them. It's true in all cultures that if you're going to have a relationship with someone, you've got to wash, right? It's necessary for who we are. The same is true of your soul, though. The Bible teaches that a sense of shame comes in and alienates me and means that as long as I sense that dirtiness, I'm not going to let you get close to me. You're not going to know me for what I really am. And I'll spend my time hiding or spinning myself to you so that you see only what I want you to see, not what I really think. Shame. Sin or dirt also eats away at things. Sin, uh, sin and dirt bring decay. Dirt makes your clothes wear out faster. Infection breaks down the body, of course. Sin does the exact same thing with the soul. We know this. The torment of a bad conscience. The sleepless nights. There's a nagging on the inside. That almost every, that almost every good thinker in the 20th century has noticed existed, but never wants to admit what it is. Also, we know that dirt discolors and disfigures the body. Cancers and mildews destroy and break down and bring disfigurement. Sin has done the same thing to the world, has it not? Wars, strife, poverty, all of these things come as a result of the stain. It's working on our culture. And no matter how much modern people attempt to sort of throw out this whole idea of sin as sort of archaic or ancient, they still feel stained. Even Lady Macbeth, as she stands looking over her murderous hands, says, Out, damn spot. Out, I say. Hell is murky, and all the perfumes of the world cannot sweeten this hand. Macbeth turns to the doctor next to him and says, Oh, canst thou not pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow with some sweet, oblivious antidote? Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs down her heart. Don't you see what he's saying? Macbeth is a wonderful example of the fact that if sin is a stain, then everyone is looking for a cleansing. I want to suggest to you that one of the best ways to understand your own behavior is by seeing it as an attempt to get cleansed. But nothing is working. That's the idea. Men, why do you think that you are so driven to work harder. Have you thought about this? Driven so hard that you would abandon your health, that you would neglect your wife, that you would neglect your children for the sake of the next raise or the sake of the next corporate level. Why would you do that? Ladies, why is it that you are so wrapped up in your children's successes or failures that it would keep you awake at night? Why is it that so many young ladies at the University of Mississippi are so driven by control of their lives that they have an eating disorder in order to control? Or so driven that they're constantly always blaming others for their mistakes? Do you want to know why? They're washing. You are washing. Trying to find a purification for something that you know you can't fix yourself. Trying to pluck from the breast a rooted sorrow. But nothing helps. My friends, I wish we had more time to go into this, but the entire book of Hebrews is about this topic. I want to suggest to you that the writer, the writer of the book of Hebrews, and even these early Christians as they followed Christ, 
were driven by their infatuation with Christ because they thought they had found this sweet, oblivious antidote in Him. That He had it. That that thing that ate away at the soul, that there was something about in Him that did it. If we had more time, we could go into it. But for now, aren't you just even curious? Aren't you even curious to wonder? I wonder what they found. I think that's what he's inciting us to ask this morning. So we see that our Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Son, comes to us as sustainer. He comes to us as purifier. But then thirdly and finally, he comes to us as interceder. Notice what it says right after that. What does it mean that the Son has sat down at the right hand of the majesty? Well, the the sitting down is sort of the clue to that passage. You see, in the Old Testament tabernacle, one of of all of the furniture that was located there in that place, in that worship center, there were no chairs to be found. The priests who operated in the tabernacle day in, day out, never sat down. It was their responsibility to be about the continual work of maintaining the cleanliness before the Father um, and to make sure that all of these things, that purification was always made. But folks, hearing that Jesus has forgiven you, hearing that Jesus has come and forgiven you, does not create a whole cure until you have his sitting down. It's a key to the Christian life because most people get the dying for sins part. Anybody on the street can tell you that. What did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to die for my sins. But how rarely do you have anyone with an understanding that afterwards Jesus sat down Most of us believe that he sort of took away my guilt, took away my pain. But if he did not sit down, that means that the next time I'm back on probation. In other words, I look and all I have left, he may have died for my sins, but if I mess up again, then I'm stuck. I don't have any eternal security that I know that I'm going to stay here. And as a result, we end up feeling good whenever we're performing well for God. And we feel insecure whenever we've messed up. I know this is the way we talk. Oh, I don't know. I'm just feeling far away from Jesus right now. My friends, no wonder we're insecure in that way. It's because it's incomplete. You haven't gotten the whole package. You have, as it were, the passive obedience of Christ, but you lack the active obedience of Christ to come and win for you a righteousness that is His own and that's alien to your own soul. Jesus sits down So that by his sitting, he shows that he is at this very moment presently interceding for us. Sitting down, representing your case before the Father. He goes to our God with the strongest possible plea that he could make. The sacrifice of himself. I've watched enough um, law and order to know how um, lawyers work, right? All the lawyers in the room know that if you watch Law and Order, you know everything about the legal field, right? But I know enough to know that when a lawyer sort of finds himself in a, in a bad way and he knows that he can't win the case, there's a couple routes he can go, right? I mean, he can try to jury rig it, try to bribe a couple jurors maybe, right? Maybe somehow he can use a bunch of fancy words to, uh, to confuse people. Maybe he can sort of uh, dig through his old law school books and find a loophole in the system, and I want to suggest to you that if, if all that you know of the Lord Jesus Christ is forgiveness of sins and you don't know about his sitting down, 
then I'll bet you imagine Jesus as your lawyer, as your advocate before the Father, much as that sort of hapless lawyer is. In other words, it sort of goes something like this. You imagine Jesus going before the Father saying, Lord, I'm here to represent my client, Les Newsom. And um, yeah, he did it again. He did it again. But, but, Father, please, please, pretty, pretty, please. Could you just let him off this one time? For my sake, I know he did it again, but just one more time. We imagine that this is somehow Jesus' intercession for us. And the reason why we're insecure is because we wonder how long that's going to last. How long before the father looks at his son and finally says, no, that's enough. Not even for your sake. And I'm going to let that go again. Too many times he's used it up. We are all gripped, Sinclair Ferguson says, with the prodigal suspicion. When the prodigal returns home, he looks at his father and says, I am not even worthy to be called your son. We're all gripped with that. But folks, here's the good news. This is the, this is the point right here. Because of Jesus' work as our perfect high priest, he has a case. Jesus has a case. A perfect case. It's airtight, open and shut. He comes to the Father and says, Father, I know that you are absolutely just. And you know and I know that your law says that if Les Newsom treats people the way in which he's treated people this last week, that quite frankly, he's worthy of death. But do you see my blood? Do you see my hands? Do you see my side? Father, because you are just, that's the payment. Your justice is not allowed to accept two payments for one sin. I've already taken the payment, so there's no condemnation left for him. Do you get it? The same law that used to curse you is now speaking on your behalf. It's no longer mercy that the Christian asks for, but he asks for justice. How glorious this is. This captured the minds of many of the early hymn writers, not the least of which was former slave trader John Newton. In his wonderful hymn, Let Us Love and Praise and Wonder. Tell me, John Newton, what should we love and praise and wonder about? And he says this in the third stanza. Let us wonder because grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, and here it is, justice smiles and asks no more. My friends, that's the thing. (laughs) That's what these early believers got. It came home to them. The, 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 The lights came on. And they thought to themselves, this thing that's been eating away inside of me, is somehow wrapped up, its solution is wrapped up in that man. And I want to know who he is. Don't you? <laughs> what do you think about that? There was a Scottish pastor and theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers who wrote an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Some people have told me that you can find this on the internet if you search hard enough for it. But the premise of this paper that Chalmers said basically, that Palmer, Chalmers writes, is basically this. 
He said, the only way that you're ever going to get your eyes off of something that you find attractive is to put something more attractive in front of it. You see the point. The manner of our coming to Christ is not a matter of sort of saying to yourself, well, you know what, I've got to, I've got to get back together with God. I tell you what, I've been drifting a long time and I've just got to make my heart right with God. Nor is it a matter of starting some new program of self-discipline. It's not a matter of sort of reading a book on a better prayer life, as good as all of those things may be. My friends, the matter of coming back to Christ is coming and finding Him to be more attractive than whatever it is that I've held up in front of my imagination. Do you see that? Have you grasped that? And Chalmers says that to grasp that new affection is expulsive. It expels things. You're trying to expel certain habits from your life. You're struggling with things, sins that you think, God, will this ever get over it? Will I ever get past this? Will I ever experience any victory along this line? My friends, the only power that has explosive, expulsive power behind it is to see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot be bested. And the writer of Hebrews asks you that question this morning. Do you see him as such? If not, aren't you even curious? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is beyond our capability, according to the rest of your scripture, to see you for what you are. Because if sin has done anything in us, it has masked our ability to even see it. And that means it's masked our ability to see you. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you would make yourself visible. That we might see you perhaps in a way in which we never had. Sustaining us. Holding me together right now. Purifying us. A sweet, oblivious antidote. And interceding for me now. Not begging and pleading. Crossing your fingers that we'll win this case. But with the certainty of your own blood. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself present in our hearts. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.